You won't believe the look of eager anticipation that was on some of your faces as you heard Doug, Dr. Doug Bauer say, finally, all of you. Because I think you thought that now First Peter is coming to an end. No, no, no. No, this is Sermon 9 in my planned nine-sermon series. <laughs> some of you aren't amused by that. Not nearly as amused as I am. Hey, I think it's been uh, uh, an interesting walk through First Peter these last several weeks. We started back in early July, and, and we're going to continue on until we finish the letter here in a number of more weeks. But, but as we've been looking at First Peter this summer, I, I really think that this recurring theme keeps coming back to us. God makes a people for himself through Jesus Christ. And those, those people uh, find their identity in God, in, in Jesus, in who he has called them to be. And then God expects his people, the, the holy nation, sojourners and exiles, God expects his people to respond to his grace by living in his way. The sojourners and exiles, believers in Jesus, do not share in the beliefs the values, the morals, and the priorities of the world around them. And they are called, in Peter's words, to live public lives of honor, of holiness, seeking to be holy as God is holy, seeking to give witness to God's grace and God's glory. And we've seen over the past couple of weeks that this means very specific things for the way believers in Jesus interact with their governing authority. We've seen how there, that this means very specific things for how a believer in Jesus who may be a servant or a slave reacts or interreacts uh, with the authority above them, wives and husbands. And here, Peter, after directly addressing men and women who were servants, wives, or husbands, takes a step back to address the whole of the community. Finally, all of you. What we see in our passage for today is, 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 through 12, I know that you already have your Bibles open. What we see in this passage today is simply this. Sojourners and exiles are called to live in harmony with others. Starting with the fellow believers in Jesus and extending to those around them who may not believe in Jesus. Finally, Peter writes, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. All believers in Jesus, regardless of their marital or social circumstances, are addressed here. As Peter calls upon believers in Jesus to live in harmony with one another. Now, what is harmony? Harmony is one of those things that I can't find because I am tone deaf. Delayed reaction. <laughs> I can't carry a tune in a bucket. I had a very good friend uh, when we were living in Pensacola. His name was Michael. He and I were worshiping the Lord together in a service, and he looked over at me at one point, and he said, Caleb, you don't know what, what uh, key you're not singing in right now, do you? <laughs> and I said, no. I don't know what harmony is, so I had to look it up. Not in a musical sense, but rather in a relational sense, harmony is defined as an orderly or pleasing combination of elements that make up the whole. Essentially, what it means is that the individual parts of the whole get along so well 
that there is one unit. A harmonious relationship is, is one in which there is an agreement of feeling, attitude, or action. For harmony to exist, it really does mean that people have to get along. For harmony to, to mark the community of sojourners and exiles, Peter describes some characteristics that must be present within the church, that must define the relationships. In this verse, in this single verse, chapter 3, verse 8, in this verse, Peter writes about how members of God's holy nation are to relate to one another, and he does so using family language. By using family language, Peter subtly communicates that the relationships between fellow believers are to be close and intimate, going beyond the quote-unquote normal cultural divides of societal position, authority, race, language, and even biological families. Blood is thicker than water, people often say. Family relationships are always more important than others. Blood is thicker than water, and Jesus' blood is the thickest of all, creating a family out of all those who believe in him. So God's holy nation, the sojourners and exiles, are an alternate society in which the obligations to blood relatives are extended to those who are under the blood of Jesus. Let's very briefly look at the five things Peter says are to mark the relationships of a believer to another believer, to the community as a whole. First, Peter writes, have a unity of mind. We know what that is. Unity of mind, being like-minded. A common faith, a common belief, a common ethic, a common way to live. Having common faith and having common belief builds cohesion, it builds unity, it builds identity, it builds purpose. As believers in Jesus, the common faith is, is bound up with the apostles' teaching and the community of believers are formed from it, formed around it, and formed by it. And so having unity of mind must first be having a biblical mindset. Now, of course, we understand that there's always going to be room for conversation. There's always going to be room for some areas of disagreement in our common faith. But when it comes to the triune God, when it comes to the person and work of Jesus, when it comes to salvation, to name just a few points, we really all ought to be on the same page. Not in the same general vicinity, but on the same page. Second, so for harmony, for peaceful coexistence, for unity, there should be a unity of mind. Second, Peter writes, have sympathy. Be willing to share in the feelings of another, whether those feelings are of joy or sorrow. I'm an absolute idiot with this, I'll be honest. I can remember when my wife was giving birth to our first daughter, our first daughter, our only daughter. Did you know that, Anna Camden's our first daughter? I remember that uh, I remember when Anna was in labor with Camden, and, and you know I'm trying to be the good husband. I'm holding hand and cheering on, and they got this stupid machine that charts and graphs the, the intensity of contractions, right? And Anna had a contraction that went off of the chart. 
So I just well, went all the way to the, top, to the top of the chart, and I thought that this is measuring the bounds. It can't get any worse than this. And so in my stupidity, I opened my mouth, and I said, look, Anna, it can't get any worse than that. And the very next contraction went off the chart. I had no idea what she was going through, but worse than that, I didn't really have a desire to know what she was going through. Not very sympathetic in some of these things. But in fellowship and in life together, one of the things that I've had to learn how to be as a husband and as a father is sympathetic. Mourning and hurting with someone who is hurting and mourning. And being willing to share in the feelings of another, whether those feelings are of joy or of sorrow, whether those feelings may cause us personal discomfort or not. Peter says that having sympathy is one of the marks of the relationships of believers together. That is fellowship. That's life together, celebrating joy together, mourning loss together, being together. Unity of mind, having sympathy. Third, Peter writes, have brotherly love. Now, this, this very specifically, in the first century that Peter wrote, the idea of having brotherly love really was reserved for those who were your family. And Peter uh, extends the notion of family and the obligation of love. One wasn't expected to love a stranger or a neighbor as a brother. In fact, it was okay to ignore a stranger, to ignore a neighbor because they weren't your brother. But Peter extends this, and anyone who is under Jesus' blood, anyone who is a part of Jesus' holy nation of the sojourners and exiles are now those to whom you are called to extend brotherly love. Jesus' blood makes brothers and sisters out of folks who were before strangers or acquaintances or even annoying neighbors who play their music much too loud, much too late because of Jesus' blood extend brotherly love. That makes it really hard because, quite frankly, we don't get to choose the ones with whom we worship, right? And yet Jesus, through Peter, loved them, loved one another anyway. Love is not an emotion. Yes, there are emotions involved in love, but the kind of love that Peter is talking about here is not an emotion. It's a resolve to act rightly toward the other person, regardless even of the emotion. This kind of love that Peter is talking about really is an act of the will. So relationships between believers, there should be unity of mind, there should be sympathy, there should be brotherly love, there should be a tender heart, I used to be like the Grinch, where my heart was black and three sizes too small. I'm reformed. It's still black and only a size and a half too small. I'm getting better. But Peter writes here this idea of a tender heart. Again, the concept of family is he calls upon believers in Jesus to have a kindness, a warmth. You might see this in, in another translation like the NIV as compassion. And typically, it's reserved for family members or for, uh, for another very close to you. But Peter says here, have compassion, humility, a tenderness of heart. And finally, Peter writes, have a humble mind. Humil humility is really just thinking more of others and thinking of others more. And much like the 21st century, in the 1st century, humility was actually disdained as a characteristic or an attribute of a person. If you were a humble person in the first century, you were thought to be weak. 
But like most things the world considers bad or weak, God considers strong, and he looks for it in those who follow after him. And so uh, uh, harmonious relationships within the church body among the sojourners and exiles are marked by unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And the earliest church was noted for exactly these characteristics. Jot it down, look at it later. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 45, we see unity of mind, we see sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, and humility all on display as we read that the earliest church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, and we see that each uh, member willingly, they were willing to sell and give to meet the needs of those who did not have or whose needs were not being met. Now here's the thing. We understand exactly, we understand exactly what Peter's getting at when he writes this. Quite frankly, this is precisely the problem. When it comes to Scripture, our problem isn't that we can't understand what is being said or stated. No, the problem is that we understand all too well what is being said or stated. We just don't like what is being said or stated, and so we ignore it very easily. The call is a high one. It's easy, I think, to be in unity of mind with fellow brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus exactly the same way we do and who vote exactly the same way we do and root for exactly the same teams that we do. It's far more difficult to be in sympathy, have brotherly love or a tender heart with someone who does things, acts in ways that we don't agree with. And yet we're called to reveal to them sin, to love them in the process, never asked to endorse sinful behavior, but we are called to love the sinner and to reflect them, reflect to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. This verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8, in all honesty, is one that I'd really like to cut out of Peter's letter. We can ignore it, but we can't. We can't. And the reality is that every one of these characteristics requires a transformed character. It requires God's gift of the Holy Spirit to form Christ-likeness in us. We need Jesus for right standing before God, and we need Jesus and his gift of the Holy Spirit to be who God wants us to be. Can't really do it on our own. I am you know, guilty of breaking all of them. But... Our inability to do that which God desires does not negate our responsibility to do that which God desires. And sojourners and exiles are called to live in harmony with fellow believers, with fellow sojourners, with fellow exiles. That is, by the way, why we pass the peace. The passing of the peace before the Eucharist and after the confession is, is really not for the exchange of golf scores from yesterday or a comparison of uh, of our favorite football teams it really is to seek out those with whom we have broken relationships and f- offer them peace and seek restoration. That's just an aside. And after, you know, dropping the hammer here uh, on, on Peter, Peter's been stepping all over my toes for the last number of weeks, and he just did again. And then he, he goes on, and he does it some more. Yay, Peter. Thanks. Because not only does Peter call us 
as believers in Jesus to live in harmony with other believers in Jesus. Peter calls us to live in harmony with those who are not believers in Jesus and who may actively persecute us because we are believers in Jesus. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, listen, I know I grew up Baptist. I've been in some contentious business meetings. I know that sometimes in the church family, evil happens and reviling happens. But here he's specifically talking outside of the walls, so to speak. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for to this you have been called that you may obtain a blessing. And not to say that there's perfect harmony in every Anglican uh, annual parish meeting. Didn't mean just to hammer my Baptist brothers. Again, Peter steps on our toes because we all too clearly understand what's being said. In a fallen world, evil will come upon one who believes in Jesus. In fact, Peter, Jesus pretty much guarantees that if you follow him, the unbelieving world will attack. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, specifically verse 11, Jesus, coming to the end of what we call the Beatitudes, says, Blessed are you when others revile you. He doesn't say if. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's going to happen. That's not even the question The question is, how will the believer in Jesus react when it does happen? And Peter, like Jesus before him, calls sojourners and exiles to live in harmony with others. And when they are reviled or receive evil at another's hands, the believer reacts with a blessing. We just stomped on the brakes really hard, didn't we? Come to a screeching halt. This is not the, uh, this blessing that, that, that Peter says believers react with, by the way, is not the, the genteel southern lady who says, oh, bless your heart. I've been blessed in that way numerous times, and I'm pretty sure it's not a compliment. Am I the only one who doesn't like this? When insulted, I want to insult back. My best material, folks, is found in witty retorts, one-liners, and comebacks. And yet Peter states that believers in Jesus are called to bless others, even and perhaps especially those who revile, persecute, or say nasty things about you. And Peter's just repeating what he's already said from chapter 2, 21 through 25, where where Peter says Jesus is our model. When Jesus himself was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he himself suffered, he did not threaten Jesus said in our gospel reading we heard this morning from Matthew 5, 43 through 45, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Do you see what's happening here is that the the alternative society family that, that Jesus calls his own to be is It's called to be different, to believe differently, and because we believe differently, to behave differently than the world. This family is marked out as sojourners and exiles precisely because they do not believe, live, act, and react the way the world does. Seeking harmony means not repaying evil for evil. It means offering a blessing instead of an insult The one-finger salute on 98 is not a blessing. (laughs) 
Jesus says that responding uh, to insults or reviling, the proper response is to respond by offering a prayer for those who persecute you. Think about that. Someone just called you whatever name that really just ticks you off. Jesus says the proper response is to pray for them. That's a level of blessing. Uh, Responding with a blessing is to ask God to show his favor and grace to those who hurt and revile. When you think about that, someone reviles you, someone insults you, someone hurts you, pays evil to you, and, and Peter says, bless them. Ask God to show them his favor and grace. That's not usually what I ask God to do to those kind of people. Responding with a blessing is, in fact, ask, is to do nothing less than to ask for their salvation, that they would know Jesus. But how is this possible? How is this possible? I probably would fail at one of these just on my drive home, and I don't live that far away. How is it possible for us to do this? It's only possible through the transformation of the whole of a person as they come to believe in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the beautiful things about the Sermon on the Mount is that everything Jesus says drives us to our need for Him. And everything that Jesus says is possible through Him. So it really is, I believe, uh, the necessity of having the Holy Spirit changing us from within. What was that song we sang this morning, Cheryl, from the inside out? It really is an act of the will. It really is asking God to help. St. Paul says in chapter 12 of his letter to the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The only way to live as Peter calls believers to live in verses 8 and 9 is in, through, and by the power of the Holy Spirit given by Jesus, the crucified and risen one. That's the only way that we can respond the way we ought to respond. Part of this transformation is knowing that God is the judge, that God is in control, and that trusting God more than the self. Peter, in verses 10 through 12, turns to the words of David from Psalm 34 to provide a scriptural basis for this command. Psalm 34 was written by David as a reflection upon his exile among the Philistines. You can look at this in 1 Samuel chapter 21, 10 through 19. David was cast out from his people. He was running for his life from Saul, and the only place he was able to find refuge was among the people who would most naturally be his enemies because he killed their hero, Goliath, the Philistines. In the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his exile, David committed himself and his cause to God, trusting God for future deliverance. David recognized that he was not alone in his suffering and exile because God was with him. David committed himself to a certain behavior. He would not commit evil. He kept his tongue from evil. He kept his lips from deceit. David turned away from evil and he did good. He sought peace. He pursued it. He trusted that God sees the righteous and the works and then works for their good and that he would deliver in his time. 
And so when Peter takes this psalm, Psalm 34, this psalm of praise, and he applies it to believers in Jesus, he is declaring that they are just as much a part of God's family as David. And he is declaring that God will deliver them too in God's time. In fact, in Jesus, God has already delivered them from sin and death, and there will be a point in time in which the deliverance will be made final and complete as the king comes. But the human tendency is for us to strike back and to strike out. When we strike back and when we strike out, what we reveal is that we trust ourselves for deliverance far more than we trust God. God's people, sojourners and exiles, seek to live in harmony with others because they trust God for all things, deliverance, peace, and justice chief among them. Until that time, until that time when the king comes and that time is fulfilled, Peter is saying, hold fast. Live as God would have you live. Trust him for deliverance, no matter how great your comeback is. Living in obedience to God, seeking harmony with others, and trusting God for all things. Sojourners and exiles are called to live in harmony with others, fellow sojourners and exiles and non-believers alike. This requires a life transformed. This requires the work of the Holy Spirit. This requires acts of the will so that a believer determines how a believer will respond. The simple reality is that we cannot determine how others will act towards us, but we can always determine how we will act toward others. Peter, following Jesus' lead, calls upon sojourners and exiles to live in harmony with others, fellow Christians, and even those who may hurt and insult. This gives witness and testimony to God. This gives witness and testimony to the gospel. And this is part of being holy as God is holy. It's part of trusting God for all things of life. It's part of living honorably among non-believers so they may see good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Sojourners and exiles, live in harmony with others, even the mean and nasty ones. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.